Welcome to the Millionaire Next Door podcast with Robert Curtis, CFP, accredited investment fiduciary from Signature Estate and Investment Advisors. In this podcast, we help successful wealth accumulators like you looking to transition to a work optional lifestyle by helping you build strategies for growing and maintaining your wealth. Robert draws from years of experience and fiduciary responsibility and interviews guest experts to help you build reliable strategies to grow and maintain your wealth. Now, on to the show. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to the Millionaire Next Door podcast. Super excited to have you here. We're going to have a real treat, an excellent guest. I'm really excited. Took a while to arrange this. But I think you'll enjoy some of the thinking. My guest today is Ryan Isakainen. He's a certified financial analyst. He's with First Trust. He's the ETF specialist there. They're an asset manager. He does a lot of thinking on and communicating on thematic investing. I've come to rely on that firm for a lot of their sort of thought leadership in with respect to the economy, some what's going on maybe in the political frame that might affect investments, thematics, just all kinds of stuff. So that's a brief introduction. Ryan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, maybe tell a little bit about what you do, and then launch right into some of the themes and ideas you'd like to share with us. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure for me to join you, and I'm glad we were able to work out a time for me to do so. As you mentioned, I am the ETS strategist at First Trust. I've just started my 25th year at the firm, so I've been very fortunate to be able to stay at a place that I love working. One of the things that First Trust focuses on is providing our intellectual capital, our resources to investment professionals to help you to make the most, the wisest decisions as you recommend investments to your clients. And so that's one of the things that I focus on and try to determine where there may be opportunities that are being missed or looking at what has worked well. Is that likely to continue? And, you know, one of the things that I have noticed over the years is that we as investors, and I would group investment professionals and the end investor, both in this group, we have these behavioral issues that we all have to deal with. One of the behavioral mistakes that some of us make, and we're all tempted to make, is that we have a tendency to project forward into the future what most recently happened in the most recent past. And so if things are working out well with our investments, we think they're always going to work out well, those same investments. Or if things pull back and do poorly, we think that you know this trend is over and it's never going to get better. And we tend to ignore the longer-term realities, and that is that if you're an investor in stocks, and you look at the performance of just something like the S&P 500, since 1970, a year out, if you pick any random day, 80% of the time, your investments have actually made money in the S&P 500 index. And I think it's easy for many of us to miss that. Uh, But at the same time, we recognize that there are things that change, and there are opportunities that we want to take advantage of. And we're at a very unusual time right now, where we've gone through a period where the market, the stock market in particular, has just grown narrower and narrower. And what I mean by that, Rob, is that fewer and fewer stocks are actually driving the performance of the overall equity markets. When we look at the percentage of equities that actually beat the S&P 500, so members of that index, 
last year was only about 27%, meaning that market was driven higher by a narrower and narrower group of stocks. So when we look more broadly at equities, the top 10% of stocks represent now the greatest percentage of the overall market that we've seen since the 1930s. Anytime you invoke the 1930s, it raises some concerns. And I'm not meaning to do that necessarily, but I will point out that this is really odd, right? That we have this narrow market where about 74% of the overall equity market is made up of the 10% largest stocks. The question that we have then is, okay, this is what has taken place recently. Is this going to continue forward? Are we going to continue to see a narrow market or are things going to broaden out? We're going to see better performance from other parts beyond what has been known as the Magnificent Seven. Those large technology-related companies, well, recently, are we going to see opportunities outside of those stocks? And, And that's really what my focus is. We're thinking about markets and thinking about where opportunities may be. Where can we see some broad? That's what I want to talk about the next the next few minutes. That's great. Yeah, it has. I mean, it broadened out a little bit towards the end of the year, but for sure, that's it's a giant issue. I don't know if it's AI driven, but just keep going because that's certainly a big topic as you're they, just this major concentration at the top seven or 10. One of the things that we noticed when we looked at the performance of the stock market, really from the end of 2022 through, well, we can take through the end of last month. Um, at the end of, of 2022, the five largest holdings in the S&P 500, they made up about 19% of that index. And if you looked at the price you paid for those stocks, their earnings multiple, it was only about 20 times forward earnings estimates, maybe 21 times forward earnings estimates. Well, as the year evolved, and if we look through the end of January of this year, so about 13 months later, the top five holdings now represent about 25% of the index. So they grew larger, but what's really interesting is those stocks are about 35 times forward earnings estimates. So you saw a really big expansion in valuations. And I think that is one of the things that may raise some eyebrows. And one of the things that's important to us is what we're paying for the investments, because that's going to be a big input on your overall returns when you look back a few years from now. So one of the things that we want to do is perhaps look at other areas that might have more attractive valuations than just the S&P 500, especially because it's become so top heavy. And one of the areas that we look at then is just moving down inside. In other words, looking at stocks that are maybe smaller, large cap stocks, maybe some mid cap stocks, even small cap stocks. And if you look at the indexes themselves, what you find is if you look at mid and small cap stocks, looking at standard and poor's indices for both of those, valuations are much more attractive than they are, in our view, when you're just looking at those large cap indexes. You're not nearly paying the premium that you are for getting all the growth that's related to some of those themes that people have gotten really enthusiastic about, like artificial intelligence. And by the way, I think those are really interesting and will drive some productivity and efficiency over time, but you're paying quite a bit for it. Uh, If you look at, for example, the mid-cap S&P 400 index at the end of last month, which is January, the earnings multiple is only about 14 and a half times. The small cap, about 13 and a half times forward earnings estimates. And that's below their longer-term average, 
which is about 16 or 17 for both of those indices. So again, valuations matter. And we think that there are some attractive opportunities that lie sort of underneath. But here's the thing. We get some pushback on this, and I understand why. And the pushback we get is, well, from those maybe that'll be concerned that the economy is slowing, maybe we'll even see a recession this year. And the question is, well, there may be more attractive valuations to smaller companies, but the question is, do I want to move into an investment in a mid-cap stock or a small-cap stock if a recession is right around the corner? And I think that's a reasonable concern. However, one of the things that misses is the fact that although companies that you invest in, if they're large companies, maybe they're more household names and maybe it's more comfortable to be in those stocks, unfortunately, those stocks are not necessarily going to give you the best performance even in a recession. At least that's not historically what we've seen. Um, in fact, when we look back over the last 50 years in recessions, most frequently what we see is mid-cap stocks over the full course of a recession actually provide better performance than large-cap stocks. And I think that's surprising to a lot of people. And again, it's because we have this familiarity with large names. We think they're going to last for a long time. These are huge companies. If you look at even the last three recessions, so there was a recession in 2001, um, and of course that followed the dot-com bubble bursting. The S&P 500 actually underperformed mid and small cap stocks for much of that three-year period, 2000, 2001 during the recession, and even in 2002. There was the 2008 and nine recession. That was a great financial crisis. And even in that time period, the S&P 500 actually underperformed the mid and small cap indices. And you think about why that might have been, well, you know, some of the biggest banks were a bigger part of the index at that time, and they were the most acutely impacted by that crisis. Even the two-month COVID recession, which really March and April of 2020 is sort of an outlier, even in that case, although the S&P 500 during that two-month stretch did better than small and mid-cap stocks, and again, I'll point to that as an outlier, at least hopefully. Uh, we're, we'll never face that sort of thing again in, in our lifetimes. But even if you look at the 12 months after the beginning of that recession, because of course it was only a two-month recession, mid and small cap stocks outpaced large cap stocks during that time. Even, even for those that are concerned about an economic recession, it's certainly not clear-cut that large caps are a better place to be than smaller mid-cap stocks. There is one other point, though, that I think that investors should pay attention to. And that is, in a recession, I think you want to focus more on quality. And, and even, if, even if we don't have a recession, uh, one of the things that you want to focus on in this market environment is quality. And what I mean by that, if you're looking at a basket of stocks like an ETF or an index, uh, is focusing on companies that are profitable and that have higher returns on equity, that have don't have too much debt, that aren't over leveraged. The risk that you run if you just bought, say, one that was linked to a small cap index that was just a normal S&P 600 or 400 mid cap index or, or the Russell 2000, is that these indices are full of companies that are not profitable, that don't have very strong returns on equity, that have too much debt. And you run the risk that if interest rates stay higher than people want them to for too long, well, what happens if they have to roll over their debt at unfavorable rate? That's going to be a headwind to their performance. You know, what happens if there is a recession? They have some of their business declines, revenue declines. That's going to be a headwind. So to wrap all that together, Rob, I think it makes sense to focus on 
companies outside of those largest, maybe magnificent seven type companies where valuations are better. But at the same time, I think it makes sense to really focus on quality in this environment that we're in 2024, where you don't focus, you don't have too much leverage. You, you know, you have better returns on equity. Maybe you have dividend paying companies that are profitable. Uh, those are the sorts of smaller companies that I think from a risk management standpoint, especially make a lot of sense in this market environment. And so at a very sort of high level, obviously there's different tools that people can use to get exposure to those sorts of companies. But at a high level, I think that makes sense in this sort of market environment because valuations are more attractive uh, in those smaller stocks principally. I think they'll do better than people expect them to do in a period of economic weakness. And I think you can find some very attractive, higher quality areas, even within those smaller companies. That is really good guidance. It, it jives a lot with my thinking too. There's been a major focus on quality, low debt with strong earnings. If you don't have much debt or no debt, it's there's so much less that could go wrong. You know, sure. even from an accounting standpoint, there's no need to cook the books or anything if you have no debt versus if you do have a lot of debt. But really jive up with that. And you know, you're the ETF strategist. I explain to folks a lot with within ETFs how the composition inside of there could be wildly different between different ETFs. Most people just look at expense ratio. That's an important factor. But what's really driving it? You know, a lot of these things have 50% of their holdings in 10 names versus so they you got to know what you own inside of there. And most folks don't always see that layer. I'm sure. And that's what you're saying. Like some of these indices, while we do think there's a really important role for indices, What's in those 400? Maybe there's a lot of shoddy quality ones versus having the high quality ones. So love your points there. Keep going. And then I do want to have you launch into some of the thematic ideas you like too, but please just continue on. This is super helpful and right on point. I think, Rob, that one of the virtues of ETFs just in general is the fact that they do, in most cases, allow you as an investment professional to look underneath the hood and say, well, what is in this yeah, what are the holdings? Are they companies that I feel comfortable owning for my clients, or are these companies that that are cause for concern? And that's you know the transparency that most ETFs have. I think is really helpful in that regard. But yeah, I think there are some opportunities in the thematic space as well. I kind of gave you a high level view, but as we drill down into where some opportunities may lie, I think of certain themes where when we're talking about themes, what we mean is these are trends. These are looking at long-term secular trends that are likely to play out over the next 10 years and say, okay, if this particular trend plays out, what sorts of companies are likely to benefit and maybe deliver outsized performance over that time period? And even better, which are those companies that are not well represented in a broad index like the S&P 500? Because you you think about the S&P 500, that's a market cap weighted index and really an average of what most investors have. So if you're looking for particular themes in companies that are not well represented in that index, that really gives you different exposure than what the average investor has. And I think that is one of the ways that you can actually deliver outsized performance or excess returns over time. And so First Trust has become really a leader when it comes to thematic investment. You know, One of the things that we noticed last year in 2023 
is that it was a much different year than it was in 2022. 2022 was really difficult for many thematic investments and the overall stock market sold off. But one of the issues that some of these companies faced was that interest rates were moving higher and they were doing so at a much more a much more rapid pace than we've seen in almost ever. That the Fed was raising rates very aggressively to combat inflation and many of the companies weren't prepared for that. We saw some slowing down in the economy overall. Many of these areas just really had a tough time. And by the way, some of those names that I was talking about before, the Magnificent Seven names, also had a tough time in 22. In 2023, we saw a reversal of some of that, especially when there was an indication from the Fed that maybe they were done raising rates and the market started to think, well, when are they going to start cutting rates? Maybe this cycle has come to an end. And so we really saw a really robust rally in the last couple months of 2023. Some of that has carried into to this year. And so then the question is, well, what's going to happen with rates? And that's going to be difficult to predict, but I think that will have an impact on some of these, especially some of these thematic areas, which have tended to actually respond well to when rates are moving lower, you have a higher proportion of those ETFs and those strategies that are outperforming the market. And the opposite has also been true. When the Fed is raising rates, that becomes a greater headwind. One of the things that we expect is that the Fed will likely cut rates this year in 2024. I'm not sure it'll be as aggressive as the market expects it to be, but I think that's okay. And so I think that presents an interesting opportunity for investors with some of these themes. One of my favorite areas is investing in cybersecurity. One of the reasons I like cybersecurity as an investment theme is, yes, I think it's a long-term secular trend that is becoming more and more important over the next five, 10 years and beyond. But it's also an area that I think from a valuation standpoint, it's more attractive than we've seen in quite some time, especially on a relative basis. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But there's also some near-term catalysts that I think are interesting. One of the near-term catalysts that we've paid attention to is in the past, when you've seen a hacking or a cyber incident announced, that has had an interesting impact on the cybersecurity theme overall. It has served as a reminder to investors that, wait a second, these are companies that actually you're going to have to spend more on their product, which is cybersecurity, if there's more vulnerabilities that are exposed. And so you have a tendency to actually see a nice bump in some of these stocks following those incidents. But here's the interesting catalyst that that happened just recently. In December, there was a rule that was finalized by the SEC that said, if there is a company that has a material cyber incident, that it's likely to impact potentially, that it's an important thing for investors to know, those companies have to disclose that within four business days. They actually have to put out a, they have to file an 8K and they have to say, yes, we had this hacking incident. And I think one of the interesting implications of that is you're going to see more of this in the news because companies have to file this publicly. They can't just quietly disclose it. They have to, by law, by the rules set by the SEC, have to disclose that. They also have to file a 10K, which is another report that they have to file, that says, this is our risk management procedure. This is how governance works with cybersecurity. And they have to put it all out there for everyone to be able to scrutinize. And again, I think that serves as another incentive 
for companies to say, I'm going to make sure my investments in cybersecurity are sound because it's kind of like when I was helping my seventh grader with his math homework the last week and he didn't like having to show his work because he could do the math in his head. Sorry, buddy, you got to show your work. Well, these companies, they have to show their work. They can't just say, no, we're good for cybersecurity. They actually have to go out there and prove it. And I think that is you know, something that as an incentive will cause companies to make sure they're making adequate investments. And so then I come to these companies are doing well. They've got near-term catalysts, a long-term trend. Well, you have to pay too much. And that's something else that we want to pay attention to when you're investing in anything. You know, what's the price that you're paying? And one of the interesting things that we've observed for these companies is that valuations have actually gone up for the broad technology sector more than a basket of cybersecurity companies. You look at their relative valuation, typically what you would find is smaller companies like cybersecurity that are very focused and have a high growth potential tend to trade at premium valuations to the market just compared to maybe a broad, more mature technology company. And that's been the case for many years based on our reckoning at something like 30% premium that you'd pay for cybersecurity over broad technology. But today, you're actually looking at the NASDAQ Cybersecurity Index. It's trading at about a 9% discount compared to the S&P 500 information technology sector based on board earnings estimates. And that's something that we really have rarely seen. And the reason why it's happened is really two things. One, as we've already discussed, many of those big technology companies have gotten more expensive and their valuations have expanded. And at the same time, the cybersecurity companies have actually begun to grow into some of their more expensive earnings multiples. In other words, their performance has actually been driven by growth in their underlying fundamentals, their underlying earnings. And I think that's a really encouraging trend for me because I think it provides a more attractive entry point than we've seen for the basket of cybersecurity stocks in quite some time. As I think about technology and I think about artificial intelligence and cloud computing and all these other technology trends, I've got to say, I like the fact that each one of them is interwoven with cybersecurity. You can't do any of these things if you don't have a robust list of cybersecurity. And so that, that's that's one of my favorite ideas. Yeah, that's been a big one we've talked about. I, we're right on the same page here. I know locally within our community, I mean, we've seen school districts, you know, the amount of attacks are just absolutely giant. You know, it's hard to imagine any CIO or chief information officer when their expenses go up for cybersecurity saying no, because it's just a giant threat. You're compromising all your employees' sensitive information, your customers, et cetera, and that disclosure. Wow. Continue on. And then, you know, I, by the way, just on a side, when we talk about knowing what you own, the holdings, you know, an analogy I'll make a lot is if you're eating food or you got to look at the ingredients, right? Are there three or four ingredients that you understand or are there 27 things you can't even pronounce just by way of analogy, the transparency on an ETF, but keep going down the, maybe down some of these thematic themes. I think they're loved. I have some in mind, but I'd love to hear what's top of mind for you. I think there are other areas that are also attractive. And, you know, a lot of times we talk primarily about technology technology-related themes. And I know, yeah, Rob, in your area, that's certainly on top of mind for a lot of folks that, that are involved in the industry. 
But another area that I think is really interesting this year in particular is really the infrastructure area. And one of the reasons that I think that's so compelling right now is, yes, once again, it's a long-term secular trend. Our infrastructure in the U.S., there's really no doubt in my mind that we need to make investments to modernize it, whether we're talking about power grid, whether we're talking about water infrastructure. There are a lot of areas of infrastructure that are going to require trillions, and that's with a T, trillions of dollars of capital investment in the years ahead. And we're talking about, again, not just the next year or two, but the next 5, 10, 20 years that those investments are going to have to be made. And so the question is, well, what sort of companies are going to benefit from those investments? We'll talk about that in just a moment. But one of the catalysts that I think is really interesting right now is the fact that this is an election year. And one of the things that I know about election years is that you know the party that's in power will want to stay in power. And when I think about the incentives that they have as a result of that, well, they want to have a strong economy. And there's some reasons to think that the economy is weakening and you could even see the economy head into a recession this year. And so they want to push with everything they can to make sure that the economy is stronger. And so one of the ways that government can do that is through fiscal spending. Over the last few years, there have been several fiscal spending bills that have been passed into law, and we've all heard about them, whether it's the Infrastructure and Jobs Act that was passed in November of 2021, Inflation Reduction Act that was passed later on, or the CHIPS Act. There's all these different government spending plans that were passed And none of them were passed in a way that was like, okay, this year, it's a one-year thing. We're going to get all the money out the door that one year. But they were laid out over a series of years. So, for example, you think about the infrastructure bill, uh, the Infrastructure and Jobs Act passed in November of 2021, um, and that's a five-year increase in spending. That's what that bill was. The five years represented are 2022 through 2026. Various areas of infrastructure, some of it's just sort of formulaic and money goes out the door and there's no really discretion. But there's another part where it's awards-based. And so the government actually gets to decide when they're going to make those awards and to whom they're going to be given. Um, and the interesting thing about this, Rob, is that when you look at the, that portion of spending in the first two years, so 2022 and 2023, only about 20% of that money was actually awarded. And so what does that mean? That means that over the next three years, the other 80% will have the opportunity to be awarded. Again, I think of incentives, and it was the late, great Charlie Munger that, that said a few different times, show me an incentive and I'll show you an out. Well, the incentives of the government right now, the party in power is to spend because they want to have a strong economy. If you've got 80% that's you know supposed to be going on over the next three years, I think your incentive is to pull as much of that into the current year as possible. And I think that is going to result in money sort of hitting these areas and being awarded. Like the fat of that spending bill, I think, at least the discretionary part, will come this year. At least that's the incentive. I think that's going to benefit certain companies. So then the question is, well, what sort of companies will actually benefit from some of these trends? And there's two different ways that I think you can go with one would be look at certain long-standing needs for infrastructure, things like the power grid. There's a lot of reasons why in, in different parts of the country and different parts of the world, the power grid needs to be invested in. 
some of which is just because over the last century, it's been patched together. It's sort of grown as different technologies, different power production has grown and changed. But another factor, I think, is the recognition that there's a lot of projects underway that are seeking to transform the generation capacity from sort of traditional sources to alternatives. And setting aside any of the sort of political arguments about whether or not that should be subsidized or shouldn't be subsidized, or whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, or what should happen with fossil fuels, one of the things that I think that, that you can't dispute is that if you're moving towards increasing renewable output, and that is a trend that started under the last administration, by the way, the Trump administration, because of cost advantages, the power grid just isn't well suited for that sort of power generation. It's intermittent. You've got electrons moving in multiple different ways. You need to make massive investments. And there were some estimates that were published a year or two ago by Bloomberg, 2021, they made these projections, where they said that between then and 2050, so about a 30-year period, the capital investments in the power grid globally were going to need to, to total something like $14 trillion. And again, that's trillion with a T. And that's a massive amount of spending. And so the question is, well, who benefits from that sort of thing? Well, I think there's various types of companies that will benefit. But what we're focused on is those companies that are putting in the poles and the wires, the companies that are providing the technology to those to that modernized power grid because it doesn't work the same as sort of a traditional power grid does. But those are the sorts of companies that we think may provide a more attractive opportunity. And by the way, I always come back to valuations. I think we can find many of those companies, and we have ETFs that, that do this, at uh, reasonably attractive valuations. So that's the one direction, I think, from a sort of fiscal spending and infrastructure standpoint that makes sense. The other is one of the things that we noticed last year that was surprising was that, think about infrastructure as sort of public holes and wires and water infrastructure. I think that's a theme that I've already talked about. But the other thing is sort of the infrastructure of the industrial system in the U.S. In other words, the supply chain that allows companies to actually be able to source the, the parts and the components for their overall end product that they're putting together. We noticed over the last few years, and I'm sure people listening to the podcast did as well, that there were times when we had a really lack of automobile output, for example, because they couldn't source the chips that they needed. In order to, that was the kink in the supply chain. They couldn't source the chips to be able to give you the end product out the door. There's been other instances of that as well. Uh, and part of that is because over the last couple of decades, we've located supply chains overseas and in places where labor was much cheaper for a time, but actually labor costs have gone up in many of those markets. And we're starting to hear companies question about whether or not it's the benefits of having those supply chains located overseas are actually still worthwhile. And so one of the trends that we're seeing is reorienting supply chains and building factories, either onshoring or nearshoring. And so last year in 2023, we saw this sharp increase in the number of factories that are being built in the U.S. And the major type of factory, if you look under the data, that really saw a sharp increase in building was a semiconductor plant, semiconductor foundries. Of course, there's geopolitical reasons for that as well. Most semiconductors currently manufactured in Asia, primarily either in Taiwan, in China, or in South Korea. And of course, again, there's geopolitical reasons why 
you know, you, you may want to have greater access in the U.S. So we're building a lot of those plants. Again, some of that is coming from subsidies from things like the CHIPS Act, which is trying to incentivize companies to accelerate the building of those, those chip manufacturing plants. I think, candidly, some of that would already be taking place without things like the CHIPS Act, but the government has a way to say, okay, this is something that's going to happen. We want to at least have some credit for it. And so they, they try to they try to get some credit for it, things like the CHIPS Act. In any case, I, I think one of the, so that, that provides sort of a near-term incentive as well. And there are others that I don't want to go into too much excruciating detail as I look at the, the clock here, Rob. But one of the, asking the question, well, who benefits from building factories? Is it the company that receives a subsidy for building a factory? Maybe they get better financing? Well, yeah, to some degree, they may benefit. But I think a more clear beneficiary would be the companies that are involved in building the factory and doing the site work and doing the construction and engineering. Really, those, those smaller industrial and manufacturing companies that are helping to build factories I think that's another interesting opportunity. And again, it's outside of what most people own. Most people don't have a lot of exposure to those sorts of companies in their portfolios. And I think, from a, again, from a valuation standpoint, that's another area where we think that there's some attractive opportunities, somewhat because these companies are smaller and they didn't get bid up like some of the larger companies in the S&P 500 did. But that's another area that I think, as we think about infrastructure, sort of the industrial infrastructure that comes from reorienting supply chains and building factories, asking, you know, who benefits from those companies, from that that factory build out. I think these companies should do and, and have a nice catalyst over the next couple of years. That rings so true. I hear that from everyone, this need for this infrastructure, the aging and the changes so maybe it's catalyzed with the election coming up, but this money needs to go in. So who's going to benefit? And I think a lot of people might want to get positioned ahead of that because it's going to occur. We got to figure out a way to pay for it. But you have so many other thoughts and ideas. It's incredible. I have a whole bunch of other themes I'd love to have you comment on. And I know you you have a lot of done a lot of thinking around. We're starting to kind of land the plane here, just given the time. So Boy, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I would love to have you back to go through a part two where we could just take on some of these other themes, because this is exactly the kind of things we think about and some of the conversations we have with clients. And, you know, they want to know their, where their capital is going to. We're stewards of it, but what's the future? What, where are the probabilities? Your comments on, you know, the size and style and valuations ring so true. Ryan, I really appreciate it. Any sort of closing thoughts or salient points you might want to bring just to kind of wrap up this episode and hopefully we can have you back. Sure. Uh, yeah, I know it's been a pleasure to be on. I, I think I, what I'll leave you with, Rob, and your listeners is that I talked about our mistakes of projecting forward what has recently occurred. And I think what's most recently occurred for in the minds of many investors is a very narrow group of stocks that, that really led things. And we kind of assume that some of those same stocks are going to lead the way forever. But when we look back at longer periods of time, when we look back at history, that's often not the case. That doesn't mean that these stocks are going to get killed or something like that, or I'm not making dire predictions. What I am saying is you know, looking at trends, looking at longer terms, what's playing out in the world and asking, you know, are there catalysts? 
What do valuations look like? Most investors don't have the capacity, quite frankly, to do that on their own. So, you know, that's why, you know, at First Trust, we love to, to partner up with folks like yourself that, that actually do that legwork, have the capacity to pay attention to some of these things that really are critical for driving returns. You know, I'll leave you with that. Thanks for your partnership. I think that's maybe one of the most important takeaways is these things are important and they take a lot of time to actually analyze. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, I've followed your work in First Trust for north of 20 years. So there's a lot of great work. I get to hear this stuff all the time. So it's a pleasure to be able to share it with some glimpse, part of my process. We have a research department there's many areas I pull from, but the stuff you guys provide is fantastic and really timely. And there's so much deep thought and due diligence and just really helps foster conversations and keeping us, you know, focused on where things are at. And, you know, your comments too about sort of expecting the bias to go in one direction. We, you know, we try and be people's noise canceling headphones and what's, where are things really moving? Cause they get so overwhelmed by their recent experiences, it's easy to think that's just going to continue forever. So hugely helpful. This is great. Kind of hate to close this one out. I'm just having so much fun chatting along here, but really appreciate you coming back or being here, Ryan. And thanks so much. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you for listening to the Millionaire Next Door podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Signature Estate and Investment Advisors. Signature Estate and Investment Advisors, LLC, SEIA, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. However, such registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training, and no inference to the contrary should be made. Securities offered through Signature Estate Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through SEIA LLC, 2121 Avenue of the Stars, Suite 1600, Los Angeles, California, 90067. Telephone number 310-712-2323.